Clap us in. <laughs> <laughs> one, two, three, one, two, three. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, I'm a waltzer. <laughs> one long sock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so welcome to my Friends Hate Freedom podcast. I'm Bear Snare. I'm here with Toby and Johnny. Yep. My brothers. And Glad to be here. We're going to shoot the shit. We're going to start out by... Talking about something that Johnny brought up to me, which is an idea for a more accountable taxation system. Johnny, you want to go into that? Um, it's been a while since I've waxed Rhapsodic on this one in particular, but the general idea is just being with all the different streams of taxes, keeping track of where all the money is going. Um, even if it's transparent, it gets more complicated. Um, so there's sort of like so much noise that you're not necessarily seeing where all the money's traveling. So if you can consolidate the stream of tax revenue, so each individual citizen pays their, their local government and their local government pays directly to their county or state government, you know, however many steps you want to have in the chain and the state government pays the, the national federal government uh directly um sort of gives a more a clearer picture of the the chain of how taxes are going but it also sort of makes people more uh makes politicians sort of more accountable to the level directly below them um and maybe brings the attention back to to more local concerns is sort of part of it right yeah, so to me, even though taxation isn't um, an ideal, like just the concept of taxation from a libertarian or anarchist point of view is immoral, assuming we have a society in which um, it's necessary, like take the idea of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? And it seems like it would be a just having that accountability directly to the people below you, it reminds me of like having a monarchy where there's a king and he's directly accountable to the citizens of his city and they see him, you know, go out in his carriage throughout the city. And if he's bad enough to them, some of them will eventually take his head off. And, that's very different from what we have now because we don't have that direct accountability. We see people who are thousands of miles away making decisions for us. And oftentimes that overwhelms us to the point where we don't even think about who is making decisions for us on a local level. Um, but the accountability is very diluted. It's like, it's always someone else's fault. You can always be referred to a different office, that kind of thing. Yep. 
Yeah, I like that idea because it um, it sort of uh, brings it, you know, it brings in the idea of local first. So you have like if you're giving directly to as I as if I'm understanding you correctly, you're giving your taxes directly to a much more local office and then everything goes from there. Um, so it's putting you know, if money is power, it's putting more power into the local hands, which you, you know, we tend to have more say in like who we vote for locally, like local elections are far easier to win or, you know, sway. Like we have more control or more influence over the local elections than we do over national elections where you're one in millions and millions of votes. So you're putting the, the money where you actually have some influence. Um, and then they have to, everyone has to be accountable from there. Um, so, you know, like every, every layer of government, I guess, has, has power to dictate what is above them. So in a sense, it almost decentralizes in a very natural way. Again, if I'm understanding correctly, because you're putting that power more locally and then um, everything flows from it's like from my hands to the the local office's hands to the state's hands to the federal government's hands. Yeah, the first the first priority of each of those offices is going to be for the people below them rather than the people above them, because if it's not, then they'll. I mean, this is sort of ideally speaking, it might not always work out perfectly, but um, a lot more of that money is going to get spent locally, rather than the number one priority being first, the federal. Johnny, your kids are really coming through. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they started screaming a lot. Um, Hopefully they're going to... uh, I, I think they might be heading upstairs in a minute. I'm into audio editing anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think one of the really good questions about it is what are the sort of mechanisms of positive effects that would come from that? Yeah. And I think sort of what you're alluding to is that when the federal government has to go to the state and say, all right, this is the taxes that are due. There's going to be more pressure from the state government to keep that amount down because that comes directly out of their pockets. Whereas right now there are two individual streams. The net, the federal government just come to individuals right. and say, this is how much you owe. And the state says, yep, that's how much they owe. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't affect how much we take from them. Yeah. Whereas as soon as, um, the state has to take from what they got from everybody and give it to the federal government. There's actually an interesting um, sort of alignment between the state and the citizens under it to want the federal government not to take that extra amount. Yeah. Well, it also sense? think about how um, how subsidies, how they've messed up markets and how pervasive they are throughout our entire economy just between mm-hmm. schools and agriculture and all kinds of other businesses getting subsidies from the federal mm-hmm. government it would completely disincentivize that because every state would be like well why would we give it to you so you could give it back to us we're just going to keep it instead yep 
Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I would be interested to see how it was supposed to be done because would the, uh, the idea be, and of course, you know, would the idea be, what sort of implementation makes the most sense? So does the federal government say, this is how much a citizen making this much owes um, this state, you know, has fits this demographic. So we're going to need that much from it. I, I don't know that they'd really be able to do a great projection of that. Um, or do they just say like, uh, obviously you can't just do a per capita or I wonder what the calculus would be in terms of what the federal government's supposed to ask for from each state. Cause that could get really messy. Mm -hmm. Oh, the messier, the better. If it's negotiable between like from different <laughs> states and stuff like, yeah, that's, I mean, it, <clears throat> as long as we're talking, you know, hypotheticals sort of in la la land, like it's, um, I mean, this is ideally, this is a solution for some of the, it's, it's less la la than some other solutions, but, um, so yeah, maybe maybe a more realistic idea of it would be that the federal government would demand a certain percentage from each person, which a flat rate percentage would be pretty simple. Like that's the kind of stuff that people like Rand Paul have um proposed. I mean, you're going to kind of expose my my liberal colors here. Um because uh you know, I forget what exactly the numbers are but there's a significant portion of the population who are actually like net paid by taxes, <laughs> you know, because they don't make enough to actually pay taxes on most things. They get a whole bunch of different credits and things like that. Um, I mean, just like it's close it, to 50% of people in the economy get their checks in one way or another through the government. Are you talking about that like, including employees and that kind of stuff as well? Yeah, school teachers, um, transportation people, like any kind of thing. Even even um, like pen dot workers, they get their money from the Pennsylvania government. So like, yeah, I'm not even those... talking about normal earned income or anything like that. I'm just saying, in when you take the amount of like tax credit versus uh, plus like welfare versus taxes paid, they actually come out significantly positively on the end of taxes, uh, tax credits and, and welfare versus the taxes paid. Interesting. Um, you know, I've heard people say that and I can, I can maybe understand that like if someone is actually on welfare or something like that, then yeah, of course that's going to be the case. But mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of people or not a lot of people. I have heard people claim that, people that like middle class doesn't pay taxes or middle lower class really doesn't pay taxes. And let me tell you, it's not true. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't buy that. Um, Cause my but, net is definitely negative, but sort of my, my point that I was driving at there is that it, I think if the proposal was to just have a, a straight percentage of income taxed, I, that's not the system I would prefer to go with. I think that a graduated system actually does sort of better serve the economy, but I'm not an economist. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could see that it would work that way. Yeah. I don't, I don't have super strong feelings either way. You know, if, if you've already made the, uh, 
concession of the fact that you're going to tax people, then yeah, either either one. As long as it's consistent and simple, that's what matters most to me. The idea that we have a tax code that's like 10,000 pages is ridiculous. Yeah, I definitely lean far more towards the simple. Um, I... Now, I will say that like it's basically impossible to expect billionaires to pay their fair share, quote-unquote, um, because they're really good at setting up um, trusts and charity organizations and NGOs, like places to put their money where it's not taxable, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to... it Because they are wealthy and therefore powerful, it's basically impossible to um, force them to pay what other people think is their fair share. Yeah. Well, and and how are you going to ever change that? Because the tax code is essentially created by or maintained by, uh, you know, politicians and attorneys and such who have their own assets to protect and such. So I've heard it said, you know, 10% of the tax code is what we have to pay and the other 90% is like how do you get out of paying it so all those like loopholes and protections and stuff that are set up there's a vested interest of those that are in charge of maintaining changing enforcing tax code are they're incentivized to want those things in there because they have their own assets to protect or or they hope to one day anyway <laughs> Yeah, which I guess this well, is. Well, I think that's sort of part of why keeping it simple is sort of the best means of, of having them pay their fair share, even if the nominal amount sort of is lower than it otherwise would be. It, it leaves less space for wiggle room. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was just going to say. Just super simplifying it would make it harder to have loopholes. Yeah, which is sort of why you know, uh, oh shoot, the the. Uh, Sales tax essentially would be a fun system. I don't know how well it'd work out in the end, but I wouldn't be opposed to trying it. Sales tax only. Is that what you mean? Sales tax only? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. I don't know. You know, I I do like though the I, the sort of premise that you're starting from, at least to the degree that I understand it. I think there's uh there's a lot of questions about again, questions about mechanism of, you know, how, how something like that would be set up. But I like the idea that, um, that it starts locally. And so you can, you can create more, I guess, more of a feedback system from the very get go where, or almost more of a like circular economy from the get go where, um, you know, the, the taxpayers are, you know, very directly like linked to the, you know, township people, state people, et cetera. They're, uh, they're much more closely linked there. So your constituents as a, as a politician, um, are really like direct constituents. Like they, they might be people, you know, in real life, there's a much greater chance of that. So you, Mm -hmm. as a politician, you understand a little bit more about what, what that economy involves. Um, and so hopefully it creates better feedback systems where, you know, 
if there are things like, I don't know if subsidies is a good example, but if there are subsidies for something, it's going back to like circulating back into the local economy from which it was paid to support local things before, before anyone else gets a, gets a piece of it. And, and hopefully that relationship would continue. So everything is like a link in a chain. So like the next level up, you know, if you go from local to state taxes, hopefully that same relationship continues where it's kept more locally. I'm getting echo now, but sorry, I'm messing around. Ah, thanks for messing. Around. I wanted yeah, for us to hear a, a wolf bit. in the background somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, so hopefully that relationship is maintained at every stage where, um, the people receiving taxes are more accountable to those that are in charge of dispersing those taxes to them. And, you know, if that's done at every level, if that's maintained at every level that if it, the federal government can't just say, Oh yeah, you owe us that amount. And every person is in charge. I mean, the crazy, the system that we have right now is so crazy where it's basically like the federal government gets to say, you owe us X amount. And actually you have to tell us how much you owe us. And we already know, but we want to see if you get it right. Um, it is sort of amusing. And you got to submit that to us and we're going to check and make sure you got the right answer. And if you didn't, boy, are you in trouble, <laughs> but, and, and we just get to tell you what, what you owe in the first place, which yeah, I mean, that gets into the whole like libertarian and anarchist ideas of like is is tax theft and stuff because it's definitely not voluntary. It's far cry from that. So I think I have a little bit of a a nuanced response to that. Maybe not very nuanced, but I'm sort of actually okay with uh, us having to submit our calculations. But what I would like is instead of them coming back and being like, oh, here's the difference between like the the amount you came up with and the amount we have is for them to highlight this is where your calculations differ from ours, which I know there's stuff you put in there that like they they maybe don't have any data on, but it would still be nice to be like, oh, you reported this thing on your uh, dividend income, uh, but we actually saw this, this, and that. What's what's the difference? That way we could actually have sort of an accounting between the two. Yeah, that would require a conversation back and forth, which ain't nobody got time for that. I think that's technically <laughs> what an audit is kind of supposed to be, but an audit ends up being much more of... Um, I mean, an audit's a little more adversarial. That's when they yes. think someone's playing games well, with them. Most I mean, people, they're just like, no, nah, there's a that's, difference. That's the nature of the government. It's adversarial. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Like, and uh, not everyone in there wants to be that way or anything, but the fact is, because of... Because the government is such a beast that works for its own um, enlargement and empowerment, it it is the adversary of the people and therefore naturally interactions between people and the government are going to be adversarial or they're going to tend to be adversarial. Obviously not every interaction is adversarial, but it, it does have that tendency. 
Well, I think because people don't have the option of opting out. People, well, I mean, in in some ways we do, but it takes extreme sacrifices to do that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the the beauty of of what we started out talking about, and I know it's like just a kind of like pie in the sky, like um, thrown out there idea, but uh, but I think that's sort of the beauty of it is like um, I don't know. Johnny, if you're familiar with Brene Brown, I know Ariel's heard me mention her before. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit familiar with her. I haven't read cool books author, or anything. But... Very, very cool research that she's done. Um, and uh, she's like a, a social worker researcher. Um, I'm probably misrepresenting that, but something along there. Um, but she has a quote anyway that, that she says, it, like, it's hard to hate people close up. And so if you... If you bring those relationships closer to home, she hasn't been close to some of the people I've been close to. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> but yeah, so if you bring those relationships closer to home, to you know people that you can actually have, like you know township worker, township or local politician, like you can actually have a perhaps meaningful relationship with that person. In other words, you can have a close up relationship with that person. And if it's hard to hate people close up, like it's hard to harder to get into that us and them, us versus them mentality at a local level. And again, if you hold that kind of accountability and respect through every level as it goes to the top, rather than it being a dictation from the top to the little peon who's just supposed to be a good, you know, ant in the farm. Um, and has no real say of who gets elected at the top and blah, blah, blah. Like, if you have that closer relationship, hopefully you can have a little bit more respect. And at every level, hopefully you're preventing maybe as much of a us versus them mentality for for anyone involved, you know, for, for the disenfranchised uh, little taxpayer or the politician, you know. So it creates perhaps a better system of accountability at every level, but it also creates perhaps um, less disenfranchisement for for someone who's a taxpayer who doesn't want to see, you know, for instance, for myself, see their money go to like, um, you know, starving, helping to starve people in Yemen or something like that or, you know, whatever. Any other example that I find just inhumane, inhumane. I think that's a really good point that um, having the the stream of taxation that way influencing attention on the local government could actually help uh, sort of reweave the fabric of society that's kind of degraded with um, communities just becoming more disparate. Um, that's a that makes a lot of sense. I'm down with that. Yeah. Yeah, I like it too. It's like it's not the it's not the ultimate ultimate ideal of freedom, but it gets you maybe about as close as you might be able to expect within this realm of existence. <laughs> you know, cuz like the ultimate anarchism no rulers is um that's depending on everybody being um perfectly responsible for their own actions and and it really depends on people being moral even though a lot of anarchists don't seem to 
want to address some of the finer nuances of morality. <laughs> well, and, and I think that something that's sort of like an extension of what you're saying is that really, if everyone behaves perfectly responsibly and kind, it almost doesn't matter what form of government there is. Everything is good. Um, the problem is, is that different forms of government allow different levels of abuse and the people who are not going to be uh, a responsible or be kind tend to be drawn to those epicenters of the ability yeah. to perpetrate abuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually, um, that's a natural law concept is that we get what we deserve. Um, and that is, that applies to the way our governments are toward us and the way our society is, how, how oppressive or how, um, predatory it is. It's due to our own actions as a society, as a whole, you know? So when people, when we act irresponsibly, we act in a way, or if we act, um, if we go around vandalizing and stealing and stuff like that, then we create a market for authoritarian government. <laughs> you know, people are going to want that. And it's, it's sort of a necessary thing that would arise as a, as a response, maybe not necessary because people could also get better at defending themselves. But, you know, um, as a community, that community might get together and say, hey, we nominate these young, strong men to defend us. And all of a sudden you have a government or a police force, you know. And that's a pretty voluntary kind of situation where they, where that was like what the people locally decided to do in reaction to a problem. It's how to solve it, you know. So that's one one in, one thing that I've considered and don't really have an answer to is at what point, like, if you assume that any voluntary community has some sort of structure, some sort of rules, then at what point, like, you can keep applying those rules to a bigger and bigger community. And at what point is it no longer anarchism is it no longer libertarianism you know how big does it have to be is that all it is is that is it just a number of people over which like other people can kind of have um a hierarchy because hierarchies yeah. are natural H hierarchies are gonna happen no matter what um that's very much describes my feelings on anarchism that you know if if you don't have a government or the idea is that government's going to sort of like spontaneously uh, happen between uh, individuals or um, corporations, I, I think actually you probably end up with a worse product than the flawed product of late stage democracy. Um, <laughs> I could be wrong about that. But. I think I think you might be. Um, people, pe companies are good at cooperating together. Like people cooperate, no problem. Um, a lot of regulation, the regulatory system is very 
imprisoning or very um, prohibitive to competition, you know? So what we have with the government being involved in that stuff is not letting people cooperate, not letting people um, compete with each with the bigger companies. It, it instead creates regulatory capture where the big companies just get the market and anyone who tries to compete is in violation of this or that or another thing. Regulatory capture is real for certain. Yeah. Um, definitely on board with that one. But uh, yeah. I don't know that the if you get rid of that negative of uh, the current system, I don't know that the benefits of getting rid of that outweigh the negatives that come with a system where there's a bunch of, I, I guess the way I look at it is you probably end up with extremely powerful corporations um, sort of being the governments. And you, they have overlapping like territories. Um, and there's lots of little battles that go on between them, trying to smush each other. Mm-hmm. And probably there's not a whole lot of care for the people who don't have a huge stake in the corporations that are running things. But I could be very wrong about that. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. And Johnny, I think what you were saying too, uh, um, it's sort of why I've... <laughs> Even though I've been sort of like on the libertarian train for quite a long time, and and even like played with, I've played played with the um, anarchist label, and I'm, but I've never been quite there. And I think part of the reason is because, so the way I sort of like to see that, and I didn't know we were going to be getting into this part of the discussion, but I guess it sort of, in a way, it sort of follows from where we started out. But the way I like to think about it is. I kind of like to think of anarchism, and that's a very misunderstood term, so yeah, I actually like the term voluntarism pretty well, um, or voluntarism, or however people like to say that. Um, Seems like a movement that needs rebranding. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, even if you, you read through the history of um, anarchy is, or anarchism, there's a... <laughs> there's, um, Monopoly on a violence of, movie on Amazon Prime. Yeah. <laughs> Good plug. There's a lot of um, a lot of very disparate uh, philosophies behind uh, things that were all called anarchist movements. Um, but I do like to see sort of that like the, so voluntarism would be you know that's the idea that basically like anything that's non-voluntary is essentially immoral. I hope I'm stating that correctly, but so to back if to it's taxation, non-voluntary, it's under coercion. It involves some kind of coercion or violation of your rights. Right. Therefore, yeah, it's not moral. Right, and and so the only reason that the only moral reason to do something that's non-voluntary, like some like locking someone in a cage, or like you know imprisoning someone for the. Um, would be that they, you know, that they killed someone, hurt someone in some way. Like, that's the only reason that you can impede someone's voluntary rights. Um, but other than that, like, something that's non-voluntary, like, if I tell Ariel to give me money, like, he can give it to me voluntarily, but 
I can't just take it from him um, because that would be immoral. But so I see that as sort of and and sort of like anarchism um, as it's in line with voluntarism. I see that as sort of a North Star, but I don't care if we ever get there. But where we are now, at least in this country, talking in America, like we've come from the smallest government in history to becoming the largest, essentially, yeah, I guess the largest government in the history of the world, as far as I know. And, and even being warned by the founders of the country, essentially, like, yeah, you don't want that. So, uh, <laughs> you know warn against that you know don't become like an empire that spans the globe and and so there's a lot of things that were warnings from our founders that we've we've ignored um but anyway just the scope of it like such a large government and we came from such a small government so the north star points towards that smaller government which was not anarchistic but it was would be considered minarchistic compared to where we are now. So again, I see that sort of as a North Star, like we want to get closer to something like that. And that's what I see as beautiful to, to bring it full circle to like what you were, what we were discussing initially with the, you know, taxation being addressed more locally before it, be, and, and circulating locally before it gets farther farther and farther away to like a higher and higher level of government is that it, it sort of naturally decentralizes and so you end up probably would in a very natural way end up closer to a minarchistic state not an anarchistic state because you still have hierarchy you still have government but um but it would be closer to like a voluntary state because you're paying taxes to local people that you actually have a much better chance of supporting. And there's a much less chance of those taxes becoming involved in, um, in wars overseas that you don't support and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good point. I think one of the ways that I like to think about, um, my preferences of governments and structure is that there's a lot of um, upside versus downside kind of stuff to it. And I think that's why I, I don't love the, the minarchist anarchist end of the spectrum. I think actually pretty close to minarchist. Hey, that's kind of cool. Um, but I think the closer you get to anarchy, yeah, you could have the perfect government. The upside is ridiculously high. But I think actually the downside is like Deadwood. <laughs> you what know? do you mean? It, what? What do you mean? Oh, oh just that I've never seen Deadwood, so I guess I'm out of oh, yeah, I, I didn't I, um, even, it. Took me I don't a second get that one either. That, that was a show. <laughs> um, essentially, that, yeah, you could have this utopian society that all um, aligns their incentives and understands that cooperation is much more powerful than conflict, mm -hmm. or you could have uh, just a dystopian option where there's a few controlling 
uh, players and they're all reaping all the benefits. And it's, it's almost the same. You it, mean like we have now? The, I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that there's a, a nicely distributed, nice distribution to the wealth currently in the United States, <laughs> but I think that it's a lot better than other places. So um, I guess my comment on that and again, again, not being familiar, um, maybe you could, tell me more about the Deadwood thing, or maybe you need to chime in with that, but, um, but it sounds like, you know, uh, it was probably what a small, essentially a small locality. This was like wild west or something. And it yeah, wild turned out west, pretty distinct. It's a unenfranchised territory. Yeah. Um, so there's really no official government and the town, it's all sort of like we're figuring things out and, people with money and power are going to kind of make things happen the way they want them to happen. Yeah. So lots of stuff happens in back alleys. I guess my comment on that, and I'm not really defending the full end of the spectrum. Um, I'm, but in, in some defense of the, um, anarchistic side of things, I think, you could totally end up with things like that. Um, but it's a town, right? Like it's not affecting the rest of the world. So you can totally in a more anarchistic society, it's a much more decentralized society, right? So things can go bad in little regions and that can totally happen. Um, but it affects those little regions and doesn't necessarily affect the rest of, of that nation or even the rest of the world. And I think, so I'm not saying like things can't go bad ever, um, in an anarchistic society, but as you get to like the advantage of decentralization is that it doesn't screw up absolutely everything when a town is really messed up. Whereas if you have a huge centralized government, if things go really south, like you end up with hundreds of thousands of people being killed or starved or like dying in really spectacular never ways. Happened. Like, yeah, it's never happened before. So I don't even know why I'm talking Definitely about Definitely not but, happening now. Yeah. Like you, like I, I guess I would rather end up with a few deadwoods than like another Mao Zedong or, or Stalin or Pol Pot or something like that. Hitler, obviously. Um, and uh, I think that probably is, is where our um, internal calculus differs because you think ending up with a few deadwoods. And I tend to think that a lot of deadwoods start happening and that when one in particular starts um, gaining a lot of power, it spreads the ones around it, and that you you sort of end up with uh, just almost uh, like a fertile ground for a new fascism kind of thing. I I don't know what world you're coming from, but we're, the one I'm my my worldview right now is that there is a worldwide group of predators who are trying to control everybody all at once. And meanwhile, maybe get rid of some of us too. 
So it seems like your worst case scenario is is actually what's going on right now. So how is it different? Yeah, I'd say that the difference is that despite the fact that horrible things are happening right now and happening almost constantly, I think the damage would actually be more with a, a lighter government system. But unfortunately, we can't run a parallel Earth to really tell. I mean, we could just go back like 120 years. And there was still terrible things going on, but it wasn't the same terrible things being done to everyone all over the globe all at once under the same people or the direction of the same people. Yeah, that, that wasn't great either. Not a fan. <laughs> yeah. um, so. I think I think people have an innate way of, of self-ordering. I think that that has kind of been conditioned out of us. Um, I think that if you're in the context of a small town and there's a crisis, people will get together and deal with it. Um, and that doesn't mean that no one can be manipulative and really fuck things up. Um, but I think it, I think we could have a culture where people are far more responsible for their own actions and they hold each other. Like we don't hold each other accountable for stuff. You know, we go online and talk about the problems in the world and, and yet our own like family and best friends and stuff. Like we don't, we don't really hold each other accountable for much, even let alone, and, and, you know, I don't know how much we can hold each other accountable. I don't know what that looks like. But I do think that given a crisis, people can come together and and deal with it in a way that needs dealing with. And we're so used to just um, to not dealing with it. We just call someone else to deal with it or something like that. And, and that makes us very willing to put up with a lot of bullshit because we just just because it's more comfortable not to have to deal with things directly so i think that there's a an aspect of that that's true i think there's also when you don't actually have the the sort of levers to be able to affect a situation in a positive in the positive way that you want to um that leads to apathy, unfortunately. And when a whole bunch of people feel apathetic about something, that makes a whole swath of people not have access to the sort of power that they, they could have to, to make a change governmentally. And I think that's sort of part of what's led to the duopoly. Um, who thought it would take this long to get around to using that word. Uh, but so the, the activated bases of either par, pro, uh, of either party are the most extreme parts of the parties, right? No, I you well, don't think so. I think they're the loudest. I don't know if they're the most 
I think the most extreme parts of the parties are the ones pushing them towards that. I don't know if that's the bases. I think that, I think, I mean, it's. So when I say activated, I'm sort of talking about the, the people who are going to vote in primaries. Okay. Um, you're not going to get a lot of people um, in a, a sort of purplish to red state. You're not going to get a lot of Republicans voting for a moderate Republican. For, for the nominee. Sure. Right. And in a purple or blue state, you're not going to get a lot of Democrats voting for a moderate Democrat. Yeah, I don't know the numbers, but I imagine that's probably the case. And so if you have a lot of these places where um, the nominee of the predominant party or the nominee of the, the two parties that are actually really vying for the area are voting for the more extreme version of their candidates, you get this bifurcation that makes a lot of the disenfranchised middle very apathetic, which also mm-hmm. tends to make the results more extreme. Yeah. So again, I, I have to like ask, so when you're talking about that, like people becoming more apathetic when they don't have, I guess, you know, access to, to levers of power, isn't that another good argument for um, for more decentralization? Um, so, I mean, I am for a lot of decentralization. Okay. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not against a lot of decentralization. Okay. I, I, think that I guess there I wasn't are... quite picking up on where you were at with that. Yeah. I, I, I think that there are places where centralization is really beneficial. I think one of those things happens to be military. Um, I actually don't think that um, centralizing healthcare is a great plan. Ooh, um, I agree. <laughs> no. Yeah. I've, I have problems with that actually from the workers aspect, you know, being a nurse, um, I, I've, I see problems with that as well. Um, just in terms of even like being able to choose like what organization you work for and uh, you know, basically like vote with your feet as to how like working for an organization who's treating their patients better in your eyes than, than another competing one down the road. Like when, uh, when these large healthcare networks buy up, you know, every hospital in within a thousand miles, like you don't have a lot of, options to go and like say hey i think uh this place is treating their patients better than that place i'm gonna go work there and it turns out it's better for me too (laughs) you know (laughs) um so yeah i I certainly agree on the healthcare side i i think i i don't know where i fall on that from a military perspective i can certainly see the argument for you know having a large diff uh, you know, to me, optimally defensive military, um, you know, well-trained, well-equipped is, uh, is a great benefit. However, I also see a lot of issues with the military industrial complex and um, a lot of things being steered by the money that's involved in that whole thing, you know, which is what Dwight Eisenhower warned us about in his exit speech. Um, 
and uh, we paid, it looks like, no attention to the problems mm-hmm. that that could create uh, that I think so, we're seeing play out in large part to this day. That sort of makes me think of another pie-in-the-sky hilarious idea. Um, yeah, shoot. Which I think I would love to hear some more educated people game out than me. Um, but I, I think it would be fun if we could break down our, our payments and taxes. And we could say there's certain things that people, their taxes are just going to go to. Infrastructure comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and a number of other things. But let's say there's some contentious things where people are really offended or uppity about their money going to it. Um, like starving kids in uh, Yemen, starving kids in Yemen, or I'm, not that that's the happening. military industrial complex <laughs> or not. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> hypotheticals. Yes. <laughs> um, or going into, um, Oh shoot. There's another thing I had in mind, but so Planned instead, Parenthood. whatever we, we there Unfortunately, this requires Congress to be like, okay, we're going to define this narrow group of things as the things that everybody's taxes will go towards, yeah. which isn't, isn't going to happen because Congress doesn't do that. They don't function great. Mm, I'm definitely no. going to cop to that. Yeah. Um, but so they define that narrow group of things. Let's just say infrastructure. Uh, but then there's these other categories like the, like the military, um, and uh go with environmental uh pursuits and just for funsies because this is how i got on the the idea uh like a universal basic income Mm -hmm. um even though i think universal basic incomes would be a fun thing to try at like a state level but that's different but anyway, mm-hmm. so you have these three things, and people have a certain portion of their taxes. So who are you stealing to from to give it to the people who are receiving it with the universal basic income? Oh, and that's the thing. I don't understand you know, how that can possibly is... be a viable thing to do without just creating a slave state all out. That's that's really what it is. Because all right, who let's let's think of a class of people who gets. Free health care, free housing, free food, and free clothing. Who are those people? Oh, they're, they're the people in prisons. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Here's, here's one of my things with it. Um, and, and this doesn't totally make up for it. But we've got a problem coming where automation takes over a whole lot of um, unskilled jobs, right? And actually, pretty soon, a lot of educated jobs, too. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, and so when that happens, there's a whole lot of excess manpower that's might or might not be able to be leveraged relatively well. Um, and... What I like, because this came to mind because Toby was talking about being able to leave one company and go to another that's functioning better. Um, Because when people do have mobility, I think they get to places where they're used better. 
And a lot of the time people can't leave a job or uh, change industries because they, they're very dependent on a particular uh, position. So I think that a benefit of a UBI, which I'm not 100% on board with, I think it's a fun idea and it could be really well, really good, but it could also just tank. I think it's really, uh, yeah, I think it's really hard to look at it in a, in any really rational way and see the economics working out I, without just causing mass inflation. I will say um, I, my reason I for idea, wanting to do like, a UBI yeah. is not just because I think that people deserve to just have money and whatever. It's that I think there could actually be a way that it makes society function better. Do you, do you see any way of it happening without just leading to crazy inflation? Yeah, I would think so, actually. So here's, here's my idea. And it has to be paired with um, getting rid of the minimum wage. And you, you might have to, I, I don't know what you have to do with healthcare or something like that. Healthcare would be tricky to figure out. Mm -hmm. But I think when people think about it, they imagine that everyone's going to be making $15 an hour who is working. And then everyone who's not working is going to be getting this uh, basic income, right? Well, and everyone's going to be getting basic income anyway. But if you have your expenses, I think the basic income you're going to get in the end isn't going to cover all of your expenses. Even if you're paring back a whole lot, it's probably going to be like 80% or something. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a little bit of savings to be able to get by for a short period of time if you're not working. But if you already have a large portion of your expenses covered, then you're going to be able to take a job that's $4 an hour or something like that because it's better than nothing. Sure. And then if you think that there's a better job out there for you, you, you know, you leave it for a few months your expenses are mostly covered. Um, you can actually go out and find better employment. And one of the major benefits to me is that as a small business, instead of having to hire someone at whatever minimum wage is, you can actually go and hire someone for a couple dollars an hour because there's probably someone who would really like to work at your smaller business that's more about the people that are around them and maybe is more flexible in terms of how much time they have to work and they care about not having to work as many hours. Um, and it provides a certain flexibility that our current system doesn't because right now, if a small business wants to hire someone, they need to hire them full time. And not only do they need to hire them full time, but they have to hire them at minimum wage. So I think right. you'd actually find really fun diversity of small business when really a lot of people look at uh, UBI and they think it's a small business killer. I think it's actually the opposite. I think it ends up hurting the big businesses. Yeah, I can I can see potential for it. I see where you're coming from, and I I I do think that's like a really cool idea. I also think it's you'd have to massively deregulate and make it easier for businesses to start up too. Yeah, I think. Well, so but also where does the money like just again where, Toby's yeah. economic. Yeah, where's of, the money coming yeah, from? Because that's that's a big issue. You know, I only have a meager understanding of economics, but I have done some reading on it. And like, so 
the idea of the UBI is not like one of the things that protects us, even though we have like vast inequality in terms of like um, income and such. Um, like there's just huge wealth gap and it's ever expanding right now. Like it's just getting worse and worse. But one of the things that is like helping us out in a weird way by not leading to like crazy massive inflation is that the wealth goes to the wealthy and they invest it and it stays like in investments. So part of inflation, is not just the amount of money that gets printed. It's the amount in circulation. The issue that I see with the UBI is, and don't get me wrong. Like I would love to see more people, more lower class and middle class people with more income and ability to spend it. But the issue I see with UBI is you're printing money, which is already happening, but now you're printing at probably a faster rate. And rather than just going into investments like it does when it goes to the wealthy right now, now you're actually putting it in circulation because everyone's getting their hands on a regular paycheck. Yeah, look what happened to prices in 2020 just, and 2021. We tried basic in- income for a little bit, kind of. Yeah, it wasn't just quite a UBI, getting, but it was. It like, wasn't quite, uh, but it was. It was still caused dipping the toe inflation. in the water for sure, mm-hmm. and suddenly the people, all the people who were the worst at spending, at being financially responsible, were going out and spending their twenty four hundred dollar checks because they're married and they each got twelve hundred dollars. They're going and putting down payments on cars, and. <clears throat> Now there aren't enough cars because everyone's doing it. And it totally fucked up the economy and caused crazy inflation in certain areas where those people were spending. Houses. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? Like, and so then the other problem that I have with it is now you're... Um, when you guarantee a paycheck to, you know, every man, woman, and child or whatever, like... Who is guaranteeing it, and what are the restrictions on it? Because it's very difficult from like where we're standing now with the current government that we have and the current oversight that we have, and more and more like, um, you know, more and more digital surveillance and all that kind of stuff coming in. You know, you're seeing like, uh, the most recent thing toggles on the phone for uh for you know your phone won't charge if if there's too much uh if you're not using enough clean energy or something like that i forget some some way of phones not charging to save energy uh and just popped up on the iPhones anyway so in this world of digital surveillance etc that we're we're i'll be damned if they take away <laughs> my coal power phone uh that we're moving into like what is the oversight going to be on that because I have a very difficult time seeing, thinking that in this day and age, um, the government is going to pay uh, a universal basic income to everyone without some sort of restrictions on it and restrictions that grow over time. Like, you are not allowed to buy this, you're not allowed to buy this. Some type of control. And if you're not a, like a good, you know, a good citizen by whose standard when does that get taken away or shut off? And now you're a second class citizen in a way because you've just lost your universal basic income. 
So that's that's another problem I have. So I think this ties well back into where I was going initially uh-huh. with the point. Um, back to my humorous idea of people being able to allocate a certain amount of their their um, yeah. taxes, right? to sort of dis- discretionary yeah. uh, uses. Um, so one of them could be universal basic income. And I think actually really I'd like to see this applied at the state level. So the, the church, state though? says, by the way, your your taxes due to the state, um, X amount can get spread between whatever uses that are people might or might not want their taxes to go to. Um, one of them could be a UBI. And so that UBI fund, I think the way you would work it is that each year, so X amount comes in and it probably would be nowhere near enough to actually fund it. But, you know, I would be interested to see how it would go if people were allowed to put some of their taxes yeah. into this. And so year one, it gets this many dollars. And so I think each year you say you take 20% of that and you distribute it to all the recipients and anyone can mm-hmm. be a recipient. You could also say, I don't need to be a yeah. recipient. Yeah. Right. You could elect hey, not anything to receive. that's voluntary. I really you, like, yeah. um, as long as there's some transparency, uh-huh. and with so, it too, which is not something that government's known for is transparency, but go on. Honestly, I don't know how, which states are good about being transparent and which aren't. But I think it would be really fun. And I think it would also be really fun. I, I don't know, again, how, if enough transparency would exist to do this. It'd be really fun to see a breakdown. If I was making the plan, I had all the power to do it. I would provide a breakdown of the tax brackets and how much each tax bracket paid out in terms of paid into the UBI fund. Um, huh, yeah. People would also be free to pay more money into the UBI fund in addition over what they're normally due in uh. taxes if they wanted to. Um, it could even be the kind of thing where you have like your taxes and if you want to pay something into UBI, you can add on top of that. If you're just one of those people who believes in UBI like me, you could you could pay uh, X amount over what you're Dude, already I don't know doing. if I'm for it or against it, but I, I love the idea of like, of this developing on its own. And it's like, it you're just going to get whatever is funded to you and seeing people like receive their UBI paychecks as it gets going of like 56 cents a month. <laughs> because only, only yeah. a bare minimum. Well, I also had an idea. <laughs> and then maybe well, the next year it's like 95 cents. Well, <laughs> let me jump in here. I think we already have... So we already have things like GoFundMe and Indiegogo and stuff where people can raise money and do like people who are trying to start a business do it using those that crowdfunding where you're actually getting donations from people who are interested in your project. Um, churches have programs for people with low income who need help. Um, churches are willing to step in and help people out, you know, get them set up with some housing, help them get a job, that kind of thing. And I think these things could be much, a a much bigger part of society, especially if most of us didn't just like most of us think of those things, those functions as 
oh, well, the government's going to do it anyway. Like, I already pay my charity because mm-hmm. I pay my taxes, therefore I don't need to pay more. You know, I'm already doing my con- contribution to society. But really, our contribution is going to wars and genocide and and bribery to people, to pedophiles and shit like that. And it's not actually going to help those people, but, like, those voluntary programs that people do donate shitloads of money to despite being taxed, they work really well. And those things could actually take over the functions of that, that you're seeing come through government. The government, there's no reason those functions need to happen through government. They could happen through, um, a non-taxation function, just, just complete on a completely voluntary basis. And I think people would be more likely to participate in them on the contribution level if um, if it wasn't for the government pretending to serve those functions, healthcare is a big one with that too. Are you? I think there's a lot of truth to that. Are you guys familiar with uh, with Donorcy? Yeah, it's like an yeah. app. I've, I've called Donorcy. I've Johnny, do you know given that? to them. Yeah. Oh man, I don't you think should I've check it out. It was um, developed by. If I get. If I get the guy's name right, it's Brett. donor C S E E. So yeah. you, as in you see the people who you're donating to. Yeah. So the guy behind it was oh, cool. Brett Glier. He, um, unfortunately was killed, but, um, oh, really? such a cool Holy project. Shit. Yeah. That's, you know, I never get upset about people that, uh, that like, I don't, I don't get so like heartbroken over, over like, um, Hollywood people dying and stuff. I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I didn't know them. Like it's sad for them and their families or whatever. But, uh, but Greg Glyer really got to me cause, um, just, I was familiar with this donor seed project and, uh, anyway, side note, but, um, anyway, so the app is, yeah, it's really cool. You like, um, they, he and, and, um, his team were like, traveling all around and it's still going there's still there are still projects um and there's still new things getting posted so they travel around they like help people but any, i think anyone can make a video so you'll like go on scroll through this app and you'll see like you know kids in a school in india who need like um or like they'll be fundraising for like dewormer for the school or like you know in um, that's ivermectin Malawi by the way or whatever yeah <laughs> i know we realized it was so funny when the ivermectin <laughs> stuff came up and became so big because ani and i like before covid was ever a thing we realized like oh you know that project that we had donated to um i forget i think it was in malawi um we donated to this project and just kind of helped fund this project to help these school kids in a you know very impoverished school um somewhere in Africa, uh, helped them purchase the, uh, the dewormer <laughs> for their, uh, for the school kids. And, uh, and later on we realized like, oh, that almost hands down, like that had to be ivermectin <laughs> that we bought for them. So it was hilarious when that became a thing, but no, the, the idea is so cool. And it's basically the idea of crowdfunding, but this is like a really cool way of doing it. And it's just this app and anyone can take their phone and like record a video and like post, post a little description of what they need. So like we've donated to people who are like trying to get a wheelchair for, you know, a family member 
in like really impoverished areas or like someone who's just trying to like buy a goat and you see the description and like watch the video and like this goat is going to like I can't even imagine the life that they're living that this goat is just going to change their life like it's you know you get you get glimpses into places in the world that like you know we we realize we're so privileged that we don't have to live that impoverished life where we are. Well, a lot, um, but a lot of them are like medical great, procedures, like, like an, abdo oh, yeah. an abdominal operation that's going to cost $180. Yeah. And it's like, really? $180 for surgery? <laughs> so <laughs> it is. It's just such a beautiful way of like voluntarily getting something like really directly to that, to those people, to that project. And, you know, like so many, um, charity organizations there's like i'm sure some overhead costs and stuff are involved but um well they actually like, are not technically a charity organization because they don't have their non-profit organization status because they realized right? it was too much bullshit to jump through oh, and it wasn't okay. worth their oh. while they they decided that they could be more effective without doing yeah. that so unfortunately you're not really supposed to write it off on your taxes Oh, but you do get to see, so the other side of this, the donor see um, version of this is like, you see the video and you see um, like the need and then you help fund it. And once you're involved in that project, like they'll send you updates, but when they're done, like when it's fully funded, you'll get a update video saying like, Hey, thank you so much. Like, here's the, here's the wheelchair that we bought for grandma, you know, and. She's so happy. Look at her. You know, that kind of thing. So this podcast it's, it's is very, brought to you by DonorC at Let's hope that's the right website. You can sponsor us. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the kind of thing I like to see is like, you know, you're talking about voluntary stuff on the taxes, which hey, I'm like I'm great with anything that's actually voluntary, but I love seeing like that kind of grassroots thing that um like really gets the need gets to the people because once you get government involved at, like it's it's true of any bureaucracy right like whether it's government whether it's a large corporation whatever it is is anytime you get bureaucracy involved the the overhead expands right and so it's more difficult <laughs> to get like closer to a hundred percent of what your donation is what your i don't know voluntary whatever the exchange is it's closer to get it's it's more difficult to get closer to 100 percent on that and once you get like a large bureaucracy or a government involved you now you're getting down to like 70 percent is skimmed off by the time it actually gets to the people that you're trying to help <laughs> and yeah. and you're created like when in the case of government now you've created like the department of doing good which has to like it grows to a certain size and then it has to sustain itself and then they're in charge of making regulations and they're never going to go away right like they're not just going to say like hey we don't really need to be around anymore in this age of technology <laughs> like people can just do good on their own they don't have they don't need us like they can just use donorcy <laughs> so so it becomes like the its own like piece of cancer or like a parasite or something like where it has to you know i heard someone say and i I wish I knew who it was so I could attribute this correctly. I don't remember, but I heard I 
heard or read somewhere that like someone said as soon as any organization gets to a certain size and maybe he even defined what the size was i don't remember like it they it within itself that organization has to make the decision like to be like if we go to self-sustain essentially like we need to fight for us we need to fight for the existence of this organization because we don't all want to lose our jobs, blah, blah, blah. So like any organization that reaches a certain size has to almost make a decision like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to fight for us and we're going to continue to exist as an organization. We're going to get bigger. So like, it's very hard for something like that, especially in government where it's funded by taxpayer dollars and or printed money. Well, to also just away. in an in an inflationary economy, it incentivizes constant expansion. Like that sort of, um, I mean, especially for government, they like they're very incentivized to just constantly expand. Um, but yeah, like as your as your assets devaluate you're more incentivized to just like spend them on expansion projects than to just kind of like stash them up and be secure. So many corporations are stretched so thin because, well, I mean, a lot of that's taxation too. Like they, they want to have write-offs. So they build a new building rather than, um, like solidifying the the pensions of their employees, <laughs> you know? Yeah, or what? We, like what we've heard in our from friends in the military and stuff. Like, oh yeah, we're driving around base in Escalades because you know they had to reach that certain like they had to spend their budget or they wouldn't get as much budgeted to them next year. <laughs> like that kind of thing exists mm-hmm. in a system like that. Yep. But yeah, actually, that's one of the more interesting things that I've heard in the last couple of years was, um, Johnny, I don't know, are you familiar at all with like Guy Swan and uh, his podcast Bitcoin, what is it, Bitcoin Audible? Yes. Okay, so no, yeah, very interesting, like he's got a, a lot of great stuff. He basically just reads articles, um, like whatever seems like the coolest article at the time um, about Bitcoin, and then sometimes he'll do like guy's take so his his own take on like the economy and stuff but you know he really opened my mind and i've done sort of a lot of thinking about it since then um but anyway like just the i had never thought before and maybe it might be like i can't i don't know it might be like guy's take 36 or something like that i don't remember what the episode was anyway but um but it's worth you a don't remember the episode i don't remember it um, it's worth a listen just cause like I had never even like approached this thought before, but he did a whole episode kind of saying like, what is the difference between living in an inflationary economy versus like a deflationary economy? And like granted where we are with our economy, like to suddenly turn around and go deflationary would just tank everything. Like everything's built on inflation like all the debt bubbles and everything like just everything depends not everything not the private savers (laughs) 
so much, so much of our, not everything, but so much of our economy. Like it would really go sideways fast if uh, and and crumble quickly if uh, if we turned around and went deflationary. But it it's a very interesting thought experiment to look at like what a deflationary economy would look like. And so just you know I'm not gonna like quote the whole thing or anything, but um, just to give like a couple points like. Okay, this one really got me. Like, can you imagine, like, in a deflationary economy, in other words, if there's less money in circulation next year than there was this year, essentially, you know, the, the, if the dollar is gaining in value rather than losing value over time, how does it change, say, your relationship with your employer? In other words, in a deflationary economy, from this year to the next year, essentially you're getting a raise every year if your paycheck stays the same. Because the value of money, like the value of that paycheck goes up year over year. So suddenly, like the whole thing of like going to get a raise and like your raises keeping up with inflation is out the window completely turns around the mechanism of that relationship to where your boss might have to come to you one day and say like hey Johnny you know I'm really trying but I don't think I can make this work at your current pay rate like are you going to stay with me if if I bump you down by you know 50 cents an hour so he actually has to come to you rather than you going to him and asking for a raise. He's got to come to you and say, like, can we make this work? Can I bump you down by a little bit? Because other, otherwise, your paycheck is gaining value over time. So you're automatically getting raises over time if your paycheck stays the same. So anyway, it's just very interesting, very interesting thought experiment and interesting to kind of like I don't know, game a few examples of that out to, like, what what does it look like to be in a... Uh, and obviously that's just, like, one shot in the dark, and that might be a very positive example, and I'm sure you can come up with a hundred negative things, too. But um, but it is, it is interesting. Honestly, think I think the majority, the vast majority of the negatives that would um, come from that would happen to... Government and government employees and banks and banks, yeah. 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 The 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 people who actually um, benefit from inflation, right? Which is, um, I guess I don't have a super clear idea of exactly how they benefit from inflation, except that I guess it's a timing thing. It's it's who gets it first when there's new inflation happens when there's new money, when there's new supply right. of money. Um, so because it tends to go to the banks and the governments first, they get to spend it first before the prices go up and therefore they can invest it in things that will hold or increase their value increase. I say in sort of quotes, take that with a grain of salt because of inflation, (laughs) but by the time it gets to, by the time it, say, trickles down to uh, the common person, it generally, they don't have a, de- 
it's the the prices have already increased and they don't have the same opportunity that the initial recipients of that new money had. Yeah, there's a name for that. Like, and that's some, why things like the bailouts, like quantitative easing, is so fucking evil because it's literally just a way that they're looting all of our savings. I am on board with you on that one. Companies should be allowed yeah. to fail. Yeah, totally. even even big ones. Regardless there's no such size. thing as too big to fail. And. Unfortunately, if they're so big that it hurts the economy, unfortunately, I think that's the uh, the economy not being as good as it thought yeah, it was, yeah. well, and, and needing and to really, maybe like, people are so afraid of, of the consequences of things like um a big company failing and and the ripples throughout the economy and stuff like that, but. Oh, or like what you were saying with um, with tech putting people out of work. This has happened so many times throughout history. This is what Atlas Shrugged is about. Well, if we had better rails, then we wouldn't have the rail workers to work on the rails. <laughs> you know, like it's a very, it's actually a very Luddite sort of. Uh, not to insult you, but it's it's sort of like. It, this has happened many times throughout history and generally what actually happens is society is raised up because people are into people are creative people are intuitive people have um like i i believe in our ability to solve problems and that i totally agree with the long that, view like, on that my my concern isn't so much about the long view it's that there are people who are initially put out of jobs who aren't capable of transitioning to some other form of work. Yeah, and, the, um, and you know, it def- there's no question and, that it, it does hurt yeah. certain people at for uh, a, a amount of time. You know, like you know when uh, when like, but it's happened over and over again that that people are put out of certain different types of work and that is like that's part of progress in an economy and it sucks for those people every time and i think we may be looking at a time where where there are more people perhaps put out of work than at you know than ever before times yeah. in history um but i do think it's you know it would be interesting to look at it rather than saying like let's do something that might destroy the economy to say like you know, if is there a way to do it gently? Is there a way to do it gently, or is there like, or what can we be encouraging? Um, like what are, what jobs are going to be created on the other side of that, and what can we be encouraging people learn to, to code, get educated bro. in, or like what what have you, rather than just like, oh no, a train is coming. Like, okay, yeah. like we're going to teach you how to get over those tracks. <laughs> you know, like. I think it's very comparative to um, Social Security as far as um, doing, like, the soft landing sort of thing. Like, I think it's – because Social Security is kind of a form of universal basic income, or it's somewhere between that and welfare. Um, And even though those people contributed 
their share whenever they were working, that's not whose money they're spending. They're spending the money of future generations because <laughs> um, the government squandered all the money that they contributed. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's sort of a pretty heartless uh, um, stance to, to want to just cut everyone off of social security, even if it's not a viable system some kind of soft landing needs to be figured out. Assuming if you're going to like end it, it needs to be ended in a way. So that what would you're be... saying is instead of giving a gigantic ton of money to companies that were failing to keep them afloat, maybe give some of that money to the people who are going to lose their jobs. I see where fail? you're going with this. I don't know. Well played. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if only there was such thing as a temporary government program. Problem is, you start these things and then it never stops. Because, again find more it creates jobs and then no one wants to get fired well how do we keep our job we make sure it's still necessary which is why the fbi and cia are still a thing hey, maybe <laughs> maybe the uh maybe the uh members of biggest members of the duopoly should uh should create their own competing governments right that's the uh, that's the biggest issue with government right is that it's the the organization that's there to uh keep monopolies from from taking over is actually a monopoly itself so it's a, a strange paradox and uh and over time they've grown to monopolize more and more sectors yeah arguably that is a very interesting analogy so you know, maybe maybe the uh, the biggest proponents of those two duopolies should come up with their own competing governments, and then they can uh, compete on their own merits. Oh wait, now we're talking national divorce, and we're not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> no, 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 we are now. You didn't get the memo. We're we're Think now allowed children, to talk Jeremy. about it. Who <laughs> says we're allowed to talk about that? Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that crazy lady who's just larping and con what? No, I don't know much about her. No, I I don't either actually. But but the fact that she got um the major news organizations talking about it just to try to whatever. It's funny cuz AOC brought it up a while ago too. Yeah. AOC brought that. it up like I don't know, 6 months ago, a year ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. She said something about national divorce like, yeah, we just can't get along. What do you think about that, Johnny? The whole, the whole thought of like national divorce or secession, etc. Like Texas. Um, <laughs> I, I have not looked into the recent kerfuffle enough to even have an opinion because it just sounds like so much distraction from the things that are of actual import. Um, but I think the idea of secession and whether it should or should not be allowed is really interesting. And I am torn on it because I think that uh, there is something valuable to the United States as a body and 
changing it, uh, maybe changes some things I'm not ready to let go of. But at the same time, I, I feel like states kind of should have rights to, you know, yeah. go out on it's their own. It's an interesting thing, right? Because, um, because that's kind of how our country was, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an ignoramus on like the founding fathers and what really like how our whole constitution came about and stuff. But isn't that essentially how our country was formed was like the states were, were sort of the most important thing. And the federal government was kind of in the background. Um, and I think, you know, initially like with the, the original constitution or bill of rights, like secession was basically explicitly allowed. And then the first time states tried to enact, tried to act on secession, like the, the South tried to secede, um, you know, leaving out the slavery portion, which obviously is a huge, expansive uh, thing on its own. But the first time states actually tried to act on that and secede, um, basically the federal government, like, you know, Abraham Lincoln said, no, you're not going to do that. And a war was fought over it. And we created a more cohesive United States of America in which states are no longer allowed to secede. Yeah. So it's sort of an interesting way that it came about. And like, was, was that really good precedent? Like I'm all for getting rid of slavery, obviously like no one likes slavery, <laughs> but, like, but it had already that, been, it, it was being recorded already <laughs> in other countries like England they, they now yeah. act as if it never it never happened in any any other country other than the United States yeah, it's of America. That it was phased out but, in a more peaceable way in other parts of the well, world and, around the and same there time. were ideas for how to do that here too. But um, in Abraham Lincoln's words, "If I can preserve the Union and end slavery, I will do so. And if I can preserve the Union and keep slavery, I will do so." He yeah. didn't care whether there was still slavery or not. Or he maybe cared, privately he cared, but that wasn't he cared, his stance. It, another quote of his is, as long as the southern states keep paying their taxes, I'm butchering this quote, but <laughs> as long as the southern states keep you're, paying their taxes, there will be no bloodshed. You're butchering your, your uh, paraphrase so he, of the So he quote. basically <laughs> threatened them with, if you try to succeed, um, I'm going to come wage war on you. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Hmm. So you know, I'm going to go back to earlier and say the South that will rise again. Oh, I think sorry. I'm actually. In, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm actually in favor of states being able to secede, but I think you start to get into some really interesting questions, and maybe this becomes like a the states themselves thing. But like, uh, okay, all of a sudden, um, George over here says he wants to secede. Uh, does he then have to like get Pennsylvania's permission to do that? And then if Pennsylvania agrees to it, like how does that whole thing work? Or a bunch of counties decide to talking about sovereign leave. citizenship. Yeah, people do that. <laughs> it's a that's that's a real it, rabbit hole. It man. is a thing. <laughs> so here's how it works. Um, as long as you don't hurt anybody as long as you don't violate like the basic natural civil law, um, 
you can do it. But it, it means jumping through a lot of hoops. And it's the kind of thing where if you choose to be a sovereign person, if you choose to assert your human innate um, self-evident rights, then you do it anyway. You don't need to jump through the state's hoops in order to kind of like play their game to convince them. I mean, some people will respect that maybe, but um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've got, I've got varying takes on this cause I've been interested in it. Um, this like sov- state sovereign, sovereign citizen thing where people do secede. Um, but I think it's, it really comes down to the innate God given rights that we all have, you know? And, and most people are just kind of, or I don't know. Yeah. We, we generally tend to not think about it that much. We, we can be easily tricked out of asserting them because it's not that big of a deal. Usually going back to Toby's competing governments (laughs) question. Um, I'm imagining this universe where all of a sudden you know, a husband and wife are sitting down at the table and it's that time of the year again, where we have to like sit down and figure out which government are we going to attach ourselves to. And they all have these complicated contracts and there's these dues you have to pay. They call them damn taxes, (laughs) but like they, you know, they say this is your taxes for the year. And in two months they come back and you have to pay a whole bunch more. And if not, their police come over from bubble blah and like extract a whole bunch more for you. Oh, geez. Wait, sounds so, like a bad Thanksgiving. Sounds like a bad Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. I'm sorry. I feel like I missed where you were going with that. <laughs> oh, just the idea that uh you're talking about you have like two towing. coercive governments instead of one is that what you're saying well yeah and the the choice between okay. the two so since they get to sort of like lull you into choosing yeah. between them then you get locked oh, into okay. this okay so you are you are beholden to one not the other but you at some point sort of nominally get to choose Mm-hmm. Or, okay, well, let's say, you know, you're allowed to change between one and the other, but so they both kind of think that, like, if you can just go back between, go back and forth between governments like willy This is like Comcast and Warner. <laughs> exactly. They've, the got, com- they've the, got an the com- agreement uh, where they each have their own territory and they don't infringe on each other's territory. So and you're saying yeah, it would actually turn into, choose. like, a cartel between the two where they're just like, yeah, we'll pay each other like 80% of whoever pays us dues and uh, or, or 50% and uh, we'll, we'll all get along. <laughs> I wonder yeah, if yeah. New Yorkers are better off before the Probably government the merged with the mob or after. <laughs> but, okay, so Toby, also part of the difference is like, if I could just go to a place and buy a cable subscription that was just what it was. And like, I could choose to pay a dollar 25 for this channel and like mm-hmm. whatever for that channel, I'd probably buy like three channels. They'd be the most expensive ones, but like it'd have the three channels that I actually watch. 
Um, not that I even still watch TV other than sports, <laughs> but but it would become this, you know, your your contract with your government is this super complicated thing, and it's like, oh, uh, hey, honey, do we need the in case the water main bursts thing? It's like. No, if the water main bursts, that should be the government's problem. Yeah, but like I heard about this one time when a water main burst and the people around there hadn't paid like whatever. And so maybe we have to like, I don't know, maybe we need the upsell. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't need more things in my life where I need to evaluate which one I need to pay for and which level of service I need from it. Well, well I, if I like Comcast, being able to though, shop around. If it's Comcast, they'll just be like... Oh, I'm so sorry. Your water main burst. Can we uh, can we up your service? <laughs> they won't fix the water main or anything. They're just like, we'll, we'll take you to the next tier. <laughs> You're Would you like to fly first class? Life. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, your plane's not going, but you can sit in the first class seat. <laughs> I like that. First class feels nice. <laughs> <laughs> so um sort of i there was something back in the national divorce conversation that i wanted to bring up which is just my own take on it um i definitely agree that states should have the right to secede i also worry about the about defense about national defense you know america has pissed off a ton of people around the world and i I wonder about how we would fare in the case of a national divorce. If we would just be overall really weakened, you know, um, I, I do worry about other powers coming in and taking over the country or at least portions of the country. And I kind of fear that if they were to do that, Pennsylvania might be, you know, one of the, up for grabs or at least maybe maybe more up for grabs you know definitely new england would be the first to go (laughs) and other coastal regions um and so yeah i worry about um just the the military canadians they're mounties they've been they're so aggressive (laughs) (laughs) the red wave (laughs) But yeah, so that's like, I, philosophically, I love the idea of national divorce. And yet I sort of have this caveat of, well, I don't know, like, how would that actually play out? You know, just given, given our current paradigm in which we've been militarily occupying over a hundred countries for a while now and dropping bombs in most of them. (laughs) You know, we were talking about. You know why I maybe don't worry about it so much? Hmm. Because I feel like it's kind of like Brexit, where some people kind of get hot and bothered for it. And like one or two states, uh, looking at you like Texas and Washington, are like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. We do it. And they kind of hate it. And the rest of the country just kind of sit there and be like, nah, <laughs> we're going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be about how the British feel about Brexit. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, oh, I don't think we're going to bother to go back. Maybe, hey guys, 
how would you feel? <laughs> We've been watching Car- Clarkson's farm and he has to deal with his local government constantly and it is the most infuriating thing like he can't get anything done and they've (laughs) sort of got a or like one guy in the neighborhood got a vendetta against him but he's very involved in the local government and it's just like screwing everything like every every project they want to do they want to open a restaurant they want to you know he's trying to make his farm profitable even though he is you know he's successful off of his shows and stuff like he wants to actually do something with this farm and make it sustainable or yeah profitable i should say financially sustainable not um ecologically sustainable <laughs> that's my own that's so my own thing right there <laughs> anyway but yeah it's pretty fascinating and it is also kind of infuriating to see like how um, and he he talks about Brexit, how, like, oh, man, if we were still in the EU, this wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> huh. Which, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with how he's trying to go about things and stuff, but it is interesting how he's just, like, delegated to his local government, and just because there's one guy there who has it out for him, he's screwed with anything he's trying to do. <laughs> Sorry, I have to duck out for the a second. The moral of the story back. is Sounds Jeremy like Clarkson is funny. That's not the moral of the story. But he is funny. <laughs> but in general, it seems like a lot of our, our direction has sort of been about coercion bad you know uh yet at the same time there's some benefits to collective action yeah right yeah um there's different ways to go about acting collectively mm-hmm. um i'm here for conversations about uh what parts of collective action are best pursued in a governmental faction and what parts of collective action are best pursued in a voluntary action. Cause I think there's a whole lot that goes into the sort of more coercive government side that could be uh, voluntary collective action. And there's a whole lot um, of, of waste that happens because of that. Well, I think that kind of begs the question of <clears throat> what defines government um because any function that's useful that you can come up with can theoretically be provided by the private sector whether it's churches or um just voluntary organizations whatever um even military defense you know um so Yeah, it sort of depends on what level you want to call it government and what level you want to call it um, voluntarism. And to me, the only line there kind of is the coercion part um, where government, you don't have a choice. It's just 
this is where you are, you have to abide by these rules. And voluntary organizations are you opt in or you opt out and you have that option. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine really... I mean, I guess the court system is almost... Is, is probably the hardest one to come up with a solution to, but you certainly can have courts that are just... Um, either raffled or elected by your local town, you know, and and maybe that is government, but it's a pretty um it's a pretty minimal faction or a pretty minimal example of it. Um so yeah, I don't know. That that's it's it's a good question and I don't I don't know that's the only line I can come up with um as to what differentiates it. Government is, um, govern is to control, right? Ment, mens, mentis, mind, mind control. It's in your mind. Like government is sort of an idea that people have been tricked into buying into, but we've all bought into it so much that it's just a part of, um, how this existence is, how it works. By the way, I don't think that's the actual etymology of it. No? Although it uh, sure is convincing. Ment, I, I think when I looked into this, ment is like the, uh, the it's like gerundive form in French. So it's basically like governing, like ruling. So it's redundant? You. It's just part of like, part of the form of the word. It's like government would be from French. It would, if, if it's coming from French, if that etymology is correct, then it's just like ruling. Hmm. Okay. It's, it's instead of saying like it's ruling your mind, it's just ruling. <laughs> huh. Anyway. What's but, the but then you can get into the whole conversation of like, yeah, but... Uh, Words that sound the same, like does green that, language. Does that, like, where does language come from? And, yeah. and words that sound the same kind of can be related in their own way, even if they're etymo- et- et- etymologically not uh, similar. Whole different discussion. Johnny, can you restate um, your question that I responded to for Toby? Yeah, sorry. Every time Ariel starts talking about Clarkson's farm, I think irrigation and I have to pee. It's like a Pavlovian <laughs> response. So I'm back now. So, uh, gonna try and go back to it, but it was something along the lines of we were talking a whole lot about uh, coercion mm-hmm. um, and uh, cooperation and there's a whole lot of ways that we sort of look at government and we think that we want to uh, collectively organize. Um, and we, we sort of funnel it into government because a lot of people just, that's their, their gut reaction is to go, the government yeah, sure. needs to solve this problem, but there are actually more effective ways. But I think that there are ways that government is actually, there are problems that government is the tool for, but sometimes uh, government's a hammer and 
we're trying to screw something in. Sure. You know what I mean? Was there a question after that or? Is there an appropriate role for government? Like, oh, is there an appropriate role for government? Is there, if so, what's the appropriate role for government? What problems are better tackled by uh, voluntary collective sure, action? Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is an interesting question um, and not one that I have a good answer for. But um, I guess, I mean, you kind of have to start out by... Like irrigation. <laughs> Damn it, now i got to pee again. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you have to start out by asking, like, what is government exactly? Like, what, what sets government aside from another, like, collective another organization, another bureaucracy, right? Um, like what makes it different? What makes it special? Um, so like, what is that? Uh, you know, I think the, the sort of libertarian or maybe, maybe more like the anarchistic uh, angle on that would be like government is the organization that has a monopoly on force or violence against Mm-hmm. Well, I guess against anyone, right? Against peaceful people. <laughs> so that's a really common one. I think a really nice thing in a democracy is that at least nominally, a nice thing about government is that every citizen has the same quote unquote stake in it. That in terms of the government, we are all actually equals. Financially, we're going to be different. That, that, uh, yeah, I don't think that plays out. That's a big nice way of thinking, but I don't think it plays out. Yeah, I yeah. did say oh, nominal, okay, yeah. sure. nominally. <laughs> yes, that's a good caveat, an important caveat. <laughs> yeah, it it really does. Ideally, I don't think it ever well. works out that way. Even on the local level, whoever has more money and power locally is gonna have some kind of like strong arm over the system. You know. It's just kind of the way it is, and yeah. it's it's part of reality, you know? Um, hierarchies are natural. Um, there's no way to just... The, the only place in which we're all equal is death, <laughs> honestly. Um, slavery is the next closest. Yeah. So okay. I don't think we can ever hope to actually um, create a system that overcomes the fact that people with power and money have more leverage because that's just the way it is. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. So, um, I listened to an episode of the political orphanage recently where he was interviewing, uh, can't remember the author's name, but wrote the book, uh, dictator's handbook mm-hmm. and sort of, Uh, the apparent thesis was that all governments sort of live on a spectrum, whether you're talking about monarchy or communism or democracy. Um, And what that continuum is, is what percentage of the populace you have to gain support from in order to maintain power. Hmm. And, I think sort of the idea of it is that a better government is one tends to be one where you require more 
of the population in order that starts from a very nationalist type of perspective that like your your axiom there like your thesis starts from like this area is all governed by a single entity right am i wrong about that like it's basically starting from like the idea of like germany is defined by these borders and consists of this amount of population and america is defined by these borders and consists of this population i think now what percentage of the population is involved in making the decision i don't think it necessarily has to be defined by that that's just that's now so here's a it. here's a key distinction there is there's a big difference between the percentage of the population required uh, whose support is required to maintain mm-hmm. power versus how much of the population you need uh, versus the percentage of the population making the decision. Because he would say that uh, in a lot of states in the United States, the percentage of the population that you actually need to win in order to win that state as a uh, president, mm-hmm. presidential candidate is like 10%. You need 10% of that state to support you in order to get the nomination Uh for the one party. Hmm. Um, And then after that, so despite the fact that you may live in a democracy where uh, either majority or electoral college, whatever system you use, that it's, it's pretty close to half. um, You, you only, you need that much to, to win the election. You actually don't need quote unquote, the support of all of that. You can just gain the, the very vociferous support of a small portion of it that will then eventually lead to you gaining yeah. power. I don't know. I guess I would have to like listen to the the author's angle, but it seems it seems like a very single focused kind of perspective to me. Um, like there's so many other factors and other spectrums at play. Like for instance, um, for sure. Like okay, yes, it may take a certain like X percentage um, of popular support to, to win an election. But what, like who is involved in the nomination of like, who's even going to like run for office? Like there's so many, you know, like at least in America, there's so many factors at play in terms of like the, <laughs> like, capture of the media and who they promote as like these are your candidates and you have no other choices and oh we're just going to ignore those candidates because we don't like them like so once you narrow it down to like you're allowed to choose from these people now which one of them is going to gain you know a x percentage to become the next president like you've gone through so many layers of other factors that are essentially, you know, like at least to my mind in our country are guided by an oligarchy, essentially like that. It's like, this is what you're allowed to choose from now choose. And now you get that, that like someone has to gain the popular support, but um, it's not like a, uh, you know, grassroots up process, you know, at least that's my perspective on it. And it seems, I don't don't know. I'm not trying to like, I don't, I'm not familiar with the work and stuff, but 
and I kind of get where that's coming from, but it just, it well, does seem like it cuts out a lot of other factors. I've that... definitely heard 10% as, um, <clears throat> a key, a key number for hitting to become, uh, an extremely influential, non-stoppable influence. Um, like if you want to change the culture, if you want to create a movement that changes the culture, you got to hit 10%. Mm. And once you hit 10%, it's enough that um, it has to be addressed. It has to be acknowledged by other people. Mm. Um, enough people are going to be aware of it that it's going to spread to the rest of the people, basically. So... Or not just aware of it, but aware of it and support it, that it's going to spread. So, like, I mean, Ron Paul is a great example of this because I don't I don't know where he was with his percentages exactly, but he was actually winning some of the early primaries in his presidential run in 2012. And unfortunately, the media didn't report on it, so it was sort of squashed. But his word got out and influenced a heck of a lot of people's lives mm-hmm. so i don't know maybe maybe i just disproved myself by saying that you know if he was getting 35 percent of a vote in a certain state he still didn't get elected but he was um he was getting up there and he like pretty much everyone knows his name anyway yeah, you well, know. there's still, like, you're talking about influence. You're not talking about necessarily getting elected. So there was still, no, like... No, that's not gaining cultural, power. Yeah, there was still influence and cultural shift that came about from from that run, even if there wasn't a election that came from it. That, that energy had to be captured by someone with um, a populist right-wing... <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Make America Great Again movement. <laughs> yeah. I gotta admit, I felt kind of MAGA with uh, Dave Smith talking about um, Trump going to Palestine, Ohio while Biden was off in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. I was like, man, that is a baller move. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've not been following those events that closely, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. That... If anything, the Palestine thing is so frustrating because uh, the little bit I listened to uh, about congressional uh, issues whenever the the rail system comes up, it's just like Congress has more or less signed everything over to the few rail companies that actually operate things. And there's just so little oversight of any of it. Um, And of course, when something like East Palestine happens, it's like Palestine, sorry. Um, It's like, Oh, that totally confirms the bias that there, I have. There may be very this. little oversight, but there's a lot of pressure from the government to just keep going. Like they were about to strike with, you know, their union negotiations and stuff. And they were basically ordered back to work. Like 
the the union did not get what they wanted. The workers wanted like yeah, paid sick leave or something like that, or just being able to take sick days, and and the administration was kind of like, no, fuck you, run the trains, <laughs> you know. And they've been trying to do this um, lean transportation thing where they only run, like, well, really, they're trying to get to one person per train, which if you've got two miles of train cars and you've got one guy operating the engine and no one to do other, like, technical jobs, that's pretty crazy. These days they run two or three people. But they're all up in the engine because they don't do cabooses anymore. So if anything happens further back on the train, like say they have to stop, it takes what, like five, ten minutes just to stop. And then you gotta walk back a mile and a half to wherever the car is that has a problem. You gotta disconnect that car and pull the train forward into the yard and back it up and then pull the other part, like bring an engine back to the other part of the train that you disconnected and pull that up and pull it back and leave the car. Like there's, you're going to take hours to do this job and it doesn't all have to be done by like, I mean, it, it doesn't all depend on how many people you have doing it, but the fewer people, the longer it takes is basically what it comes down to. There's got to be a better way. Let's ask Chat GPT. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love using language predictors to uh, solve yeah, logical right? problems. What could go wrong? <laughs> Wasn't there one? I don't remember if it was Google's or Micro. Which one is uh, Chat GPT? Is that the Google one? Uh, it's OpenAI. Is the is the company behind it? I don't know. Okay. I think they're. What they're somewhat affiliated with Microsoft. I think they're like being used with Bing. Okay, like, so maybe it was the by, Google one that went like live places. and they took it down within like 28 hours or 24 hours because it um, became racist. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, no, I guess it was. Maybe it is a separate thing because I know there was the the one, the Microsoft one, like was getting all the the press about how it was like talking back to people and like scoring it like coming back with wrong answers. And then when people were telling it, it was wrong there. It's, it was like fighting back and saying like, you're a person <laughs> got too many of its, uh, intelligence from Twitter. Yeah. It was getting very <laughs> testy and yeah, probably <laughs> just downloaded Twitter. It was like, I'm going to call you all sorts of names. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what happened. You're onto something. Yeah, <laughs> you should go work at Microsoft. <laughs> They've been trying to get me for years. <laughs> was it the? I think it was the No Agenda guys were like, yeah, I think uh, they were speculating that like Microsoft was letting it go, like that they actually wanted that to happen because they're like, look at all the press it's getting. <laughs> oh, okay. Like any pe- any press is good press kind of strategy. Yeah. I mean, those guys will speculate willy-nilly about just about anything, but it was a pretty funny <laughs> idea. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. It was getting a lot of press, so could be. Well, I'm going to wrap this thing up pretty soon. Do you guys have any final thoughts that you want to give? 
Why do you think we all hate freedom? Well, any man who chooses safety over freedom gets neither. And we like our safety. We do like our safety. Hmm. So you're saying if I use condoms, I'm a slave? I mean, I wouldn't say slave necessarily, but it's... I mean, you are a father, and there's certain restrictions that go with that. <laughs> it feels a lot more free not using one. <laughs> yeah, being a father, I, I know the cost of freedom. <laughs> Hashtag worth it, I hope. Comes with great responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well no I don't have any uh, any great deep thoughts but it was fun hanging out yeah this has been good thanks guys yeah, dudes. thank you appreciate you stopping by I definitely am coming away with a whole lot to think about yeah, cool. I kind of think it would be like that the whole concept that we started out with like I really like that idea of um just like how how we could sort of i mean we're we're in such a crazy bureaucratic system that it would be like impossible to implement anything of significant change but like i guess to me anything that brings us brings um um i guess brings us a little bit closer to decentralization or starts moving moving the values in that direction, like moving the, I guess, like money closer to its source, closer to where it's needed in terms of like taxpayers, like paying taxes more locally, that type of thing where it's just like, I think anything that moves in that direction where more accountability is really what we're talking about. Right. So like anything that moves more in the direction of sort of like local accountability I would like to see that, and I think it would be kind of interesting. I don't, I don't know if you it's know something what? that we want to readdress. I'm, I'm glad that cool. we, you came back around to this, because I actually had an idea around this that I forgot until just now, but what if an entire town got together and identified as one entity? Like, I get that the federal government wouldn't, like, it would be hard to get the federal government to recognize every person in that town as part of this one identity. But, like, the idea is you would you would be one identity that would pay taxes collectively rather than um, each individually. Hmm. There is a lot to parse out in that. But I think you could probably do it. Like that's very that's a fun idea. I I really enjoy. You could the you could leverage the trans agenda and all this like LGBTQ shit. Like you could leverage that into hey, all of us we're one person. <laughs> we identify as one person. Therefore, we pay taxes as one person. Certainly, that would be yeah. a politically savvy way to go about. Um, actually implementing that.
I wonder if there's a legal structure in which you could already do that, like, to, uh, to some degree. Like, if you created, if you, uh, got together as, like, a commune, and none of you had any income, essentially, like, you created a fully circular economy within that town or whatever, um, and so no one had any, like, yeah, I don't know if you were using like barter or or some sort of alternate currency, and uh, had like a fairly self-supporting system, so you didn't really have to like. Essentially, no one actually has any income within that commune, and you have the legal structure around it. So you're like all all the all only taxes that you actually owe are from the the company structure. Right. Like the legal structure of the company and no one within that company is actually earning any money. So. It seems like there's got to be a way to do it, honestly. Yeah, very interesting. But Anyway, um, I, I was kind of like just saying that I think the um, it's, it's a very interesting conversation to have of like how how to, I guess, decentralize more or or put like maybe the better phrasing is really just like putting the accountability closer to home, closer to the source of like the accountability for taxpayer money, closer to the source of the taxpayer money, i.e. the taxpayer. Um, I think it's a really interesting idea and it's, it's like, there's a lot to flesh out about the mechanics of it. Um, but it'd be kind of interesting to like, I don't know if any of us has the time and energy to like that we would even want to spend on that, but um, it'd be kind of interesting to think about at least a little bit more and maybe revisit sometime in the future yeah and mm-hmm. this is not my podcast so um yeah. so i'm not uh offering to host that uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm a little bit embarrassed that i only remembered that idea just now because i had come up with it a long time ago like because johnny you got me thinking with like the single stream direct accountability taxation system um, and that is something that I had come up with at some point and it only just came back to me, <laughs> but Hey, I'm glad I came up with it eventually on this, in this conversation. Cause yeah, I think that that could be like the biggest challenge of that concept is how would you actually implement it? And, you know, um, using the system against itself is always the best way to implement it. So that could be a good way to do it. <laughs> A couple, um, I just thought of a couple sort of closing thoughts, I guess. The things that, like, I didn't say before that I wanted to, like, throw out there. One of them being, like, again, I'm not familiar with Deadwood, but um, uh, the idea that, like, at the end of the day, it is a show. And uh, to some extent, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not one who necessarily sees, like, propaganda and everything, but to some extent, like, I do think we've been probably propagandized to some degree against like the against anything that looks vaguely anarchistic that, and actually functions. Um, and the only thing I have to back that up, like I'm not really a great historian or anything, but I've definitely heard people who are pretty into history um, to some extent defend the idea like that that the wild west really wasn't so wild um as what we think of and sure there are some like 
really outrageous stories of like gunmen and stuff like that. But, um, but I have heard people argue that like, yeah, it really was not that crazy. It was actually like a fairly peaceable, it was like amazingly peaceable for like how little law and what we think of as like law and order and civilization, uh, there was, um, it was, if you really like get into the, like the history of it and look closely at it, that it was remarkably peaceable. So I don't know the truth of that or the validity of it, but I, I do think it's interesting to like consider the fact that that might be, there's the certainly, case and that we might be, might have some, uh, some propaganda against, uh, against believing that, <laughs> could it be that there could be some propaganda against believing that um, uh, a smaller form of government or even less or even no government could actually work and that people would find peaceable ways to uh, to live? And the other thing I, I wanted to say, and again, sort of, I guess, in defense of, of the anarchistic side of things a little bit, um, was... Oh damn! I lost my train of thought. Uh-oh. Oh, that they make better art. That, um, gosh, I'm having trouble pulling the thread of my thought together. That, like, so one interesting concept with this is that when you have no centralized ruling structure, speaking of freedom it allows anyone to have their own, any group of people to have their own centralized form of structure. So it's just an interesting thing to play out. Like, within an, if the United States was anarchistic, i.e. there was no central government, you could have areas that are communist you could have areas like you could have a state that's communist you could have a state that's like i don't know like scandinavian form of like socialism or something like that like you could have all these air smaller areas of experiments um with their own forms of government you could have you know a state that's a democracy or a smaller area that's a democracy so like it's interesting to think like that an anarchistic region does not preclude other forms of government um, being at play. It leaves people, mm -hmm. you know, it leaves localities in freedom to choose their own form of government. And it would be interesting to kind of see a, a big experiment like that because you'd actually get to see how those, uh, how those localities fared, which ones end up like, Deadwood and which ones end up like uh, 1984 and you know like which ones work and which ones suck <laughs> so anyway and then the other ones will just lie so to their people about what's going on in the neighboring state they'll be like no they're not free they're slaves you're better off here <laughs> right and then people can vote with their feet hopefully yeah yeah you exactly as, lo as long as uh, they're not in south carolina that's a dictatorship well, and back to the propaganda <laughs> in shows thing that's definitely real like the cia has a long or i mean i should just say the government because they, they have a long relationship with hollywood and shows like homeland are great examples of the cia being a direct consultant 
on like every episode of the show. And oh, then you get to see like what's coming up. Like you get to see what their plans are because the CIA is telling them about what's going to happen. And um, it's interesting. Predictive programming. There's there's something to it. Like they they get us used to an idea. And then when it actually happens in real life, it's not that big of a deal because we've already sort of made peace with the idea in our own minds. That's pretty wild to think about, but I've definitely, uh, definitely seen like, it's it's weird that like, that shows and and movies and books and stuff like had things that were so similar to like, uh, nine eleven before that happened, and it was like, you know, we had things like uh, what was the movie Pandemic? Yeah, you know. Oh, did you watch Utopia, the show Utopia with no. John Cusack? No. Oh, it was about COVID. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, but it was before COVID <laughs> yeah. happened. So it's it was wild. about like, vaccines you see these and things yeah. that like come out, and then you see. So, I don't know. That's interesting. <clears throat> I didn't even watch Homeland because it's not my kind of show, but I just know about the consulting arrangement. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I mean, it's nothing new. It's it's something that happens. Um, very prolifically throughout the media mm-hmm. um I, yeah i always think it's it's just not talked about that much i always think it's interesting to like go back and like i don't know how recently you've seen uh mr smith goes to washington but i always think of that movie and it's like back in like the 1940s or something like that right and uh and it's basically about like one rich entity buying up all the news organizations and stuff. And I'm like, hmm. So, like, even if it was, uh, even if it was kind of, like, hyperbolic back then, are we pretending that nothing like that has ever happened? (laughs) Like, then or since then? (laughs) Or that that movie didn't give people really good ideas? (laughs) Yeah. And then it turns out most of the media organizations are owned by, like, six to eight entities, something like that. I don't even know if it's that many anymore. But I don't know what they are either. They're the conglomerates, the umbrella companies that you don't know their name even. (laughs) You know? One of the people I listen to argues that, like, if a company is going to own another company, the company they own should have to operate at least partially under the name of the company that owns them just to have some sort of transparency uh, in terms of like the lack of choice that they actually have. Oh man, that would be amazing to see. Like buying a Snickers bar and then you look at the back and see that it's distributed by Mars or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the, the point that she was making... Um, specific. Well, at the time she was referring specifically to uh, grocery tra- chains all being owned by like the same um, investment companies that like strip their assets and then just let mm. them die essentially. Oh, huh. Dang. Yeah, because that would be good to know just for investors. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it would make 
so you're saying it would make predatory uh, investments more difficult because that would have to like your investment would have to represent you while you're stripping it of its assets <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. If I followed that correctly. Also, just that people would understand that there's three grocery stores around them, but they're right, all owned right. by the same people. Yeah, and then what you're, when you're choosing between, uh, you know, like Powerade and whatever's next to it, they're both owned by Coca-Cola, and like Gatorade and whatever's next yeah. to it, they're both owned by Pepsi and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty wild. Like, so many things. Like, you could go, you could, like, fill up your cart and have everything pretty much is all distributed by Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. your Doritos, your Gatorade, <laughs> your Pepsi, <laughs> your Mountain Dew. Yep. Probably get some nuts and whatever I'm else sure in there. I'm sure there's a bunch of other things that I have no idea about, but I know all of those ones are under Pepsi. <laughs> well, and the thing is, Pepsi's under another company too. Huh. It's not even just Pepsi. It's like, yeah, there's, there's, there's some other umbrella corporation that has... Yeah. Um, an incredible amount of it's just an investment corporation you know mm-hmm. like you know if we could talk about just responsible government for one more second before i i hop off here what can we do to increase the sugar subsidies that, <laughs> the government pays? that is an important question because how else will we distill our fuel or heating fuel yeah yes yeah that's i'm always worried about there not being enough you know you were you were uh talking about what are what are the legitimate um uh reasons for a government to exist i think that i think you just hit the nail on the head right there with that so I i think maybe um they should go to columbia and offer them a deal and then start importing sugar through Arkansas, where Bill Clinton's governor. And then they can dilute it down and distribute it into the cities right after they pass some new legislation, like the street three strike rule or something like that, where they can put a bunch of people in prison for having sugar. This sounds so familiar. <laughs> I think we're <laughs> <Deja vu. laughs> I uh all 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 very uh, hypothetical, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, super hypothetical. I'm just saying like if we want to like figure out ways to um make sugar more available and cheap within our beloved country and help people be more free. Maybe maybe that's how to do it. Why do I feel like we need sugar for the outro for this episode? Like, standing at the <laughs> edge of the Hoover Dam. <laughs> always need sugar. All right, guys. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, it's been a lot you. of fun. Very much enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a good time, dudes. Yeah, let's do it again. For sure. Love you both. Much love. Love you too. I'll see you. Peace out.